We'll hear argument now in number 89-1106, Trinova Corporation versus Michigan Department of the Treasury. Uh, Mr. Sheldon. Thank you, Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court. This case involves the constitutionality of a value-added tax, specifically the Michigan Single Business Tax, which is known more commonly as the SBT. The case comes to this Court on stipulated facts from a decision of the Michigan Supreme Court that upheld the tax against petitioner's constitutional challenge. There are two questions presented. The first question is whether the three-factor property, payroll, and sales apportionment formula that is contained in the SBT taxes value added outside of Michigan and produces a grossly distorted result in violation of the Due Process and Commerce Clauses. The second question is whether that same three-factor apportionment formula discriminates in favor of in-state businesses and against petitioner and other similarly situated out-of-state businesses by systematically and irrationally reducing the tax bases of the former while systematically and irrationally increasing the tax bases of the latter. The primary points we make are these. First, the tax base of the SBT, like the tax base of all value-added taxes, consists primarily of site-specific components. And those site-specific components, principally compensation and depreciation, are readily susceptible to precise identification and allocation on a state-by-state basis. They are site-specific because you know where the labor is performed and therefore where value added by the labor takes place. You know where the depreciable plant is located and therefore where value added by depreciable plant takes place. For the average SBT taxpayer, the record in this case shows that its tax base consists of compensation to the extent of 77%, capital to the extent of another 17%, and profit to a much lesser extent, only about 6%. So you can see the site-specific components dominate. And for Trinova, the petitioner in this case, those site-specific components are even more dominant. Because here also, the record clearly shows, by stipulation, that Trinova's tax base consisted of compensation to the extent of 102%, depreciation to the extent of another 11%, and profit, profit added not one cent of positive contribution to the value-added tax base, and that is because Trinova, during the 1980 tax year that is at issue here, incurred a significant loss from its operations. Suppose the facts were different and uh, profit produced the, uh, the greatest factor. Would the operation of the uh, tax violate the Constitution as applied? Perhaps not, Your Honor. If, if Trinova had had a tax base that was comprised of, of the profit component to uh, a significant extent, but in this case, the contribution of profit to the value-added tax base component was zero. In fact, it was a negative contribution. 
Now, because these site-specific components are susceptible to allocation, there is no need to apportion them. May I interrupt to, to follow up on Justice Blackman's question? Uh, is there a, an agreement between the adversaries in this case that in the general, throughout the general run of taxpayers, that the site-specific components are is around 90 percent? It's not a matter of, of stipulation, Justice Stevens, but in uh, the merits brief, Appendix 1A contains a uh, publication from the Department of Treasury that clearly sets forth for the average taxpayer what their components of tax base are, and there, very clearly. The compensation component is dominant and constitutes approximately 77% of the average taxpayer's tax base. Mr. Sheldon, can, uh, <clears throat> let me put this question in terms of uh, one of the uh, examples given in one of the briefs uh, taken from a Law Review article, as I recall. Uh, the, the statement was made that a tax upon, upon sleeping measured by the number of shoes in your closet is in fact a tax upon shoes. Do you agree with that? The point, Justice Scalia, is that a tax has to be analyzed in testing its constitutionality under the due process and commerce clauses in terms of its practical effect, in terms of its economic reality. Right. And here, this tax, by whatever label it may be called, is in practical effect and more than anything else, a tax on compensation. Well, suppose you... Why... Suppose you, 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 you could have a, we, we've approved uh, gross receipts taxes, right? Yes, Your Honor. Now, why isn't, why aren't they just as uh, uh, discriminatory against uh, out-of-state, some out-of-state companies and just as uh, uh, contrary to uh, uh, the other principles that you're urging as this tax is? Well, a gross receipts tax is generally aimed at uh, determining a tax base that uh, relates to the gross, gross receipts, the actual gross receipts that is derived from uh, activity within the taxing state. What we have here is not a gross receipts tax. We have a value-added tax, and the measure of the tax base is something different. The measure, the measure is the receipts in Michigan, right? I mean, no. that's the measure that you complain about. The tax base of a value-added tax base that uses the additive method of calculation, such as the Michigan SBT, is comprised of... What, what you claim distorts this is the fact that they are using Michigan sales. Isn't that it? That's correct. But they could tax you 100% on Michigan sales, and we'd say it's okay. So if you view this as, as not really a tax on, on value-added or on anything else, but just as a tax on, on gross receipts in Michigan, we'd say fine. So if you believe it's a tax on shoes rather than on sleeping, this is okay. But it's not a tax on gross receipts, Your Honor. It's a tax on value-added. And when you look at the value-added components of tax base, the principal component is compensation. Well, that this, this, this is a tax on value-added the same way the first tax I mentioned to you is a tax on sleeping. It doesn't matter whether they say it's a tax on value-added. If they're measuring it by Michigan sales, it's a tax on Michigan sales. So what? And we've said that's okay. But the measure of the tax, Your Honor, is not Michigan sales. The measure of the tax, the tax base, is the compensation payments that the taxpayer makes. You, you have no complaint about that. That's okay. That isn't what distorts it here, right? The, what distorts it, Your Honor, is, is the inclusion of an equally weighted sales factor. Michigan sales. In a, right. the three-factor apportionment formula. And what that equally weighted sales factor does is that 
it skews the attribution of the major site-specific component of a value-added tax base, which is compensation. But Justice Scalia's point is that the state of Michigan could have disregarded the site-specific factors and taxed you solely on your gross receipts, and you'd be right about at the same place. In fact, you'd probably be in worse shape. But that may be true, Your Honor, but the, the state of Michigan has not elected to uh, tax gross receipts. It has elected to tax value added. And it's a tax on sleeping, you say, right? I'm saying that. But you just acknowledge that that doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what you call it. What you measure it by is what the tax is imposed on. Your, your Honor, and the measure of the tax is value added. This is a tax on sleeping shoes. The practical effect of the tax, we submit, Your Honor, is a tax on value-added, and the only way that, a, that, that Michigan could exact a positive contribution of tax from Trinova in this case is by taxing extraterritorial value, which the due process and Congress... Well, isn't, there, isn't there another answer to Justice Scalia? Two different taxpayers, one situated as you are, and another one with precisely the same gross receipts in Michigan would pay, pay vastly different taxes. That's correct. Yeah. It's correct, not a tax on gross receipts. That is my point. If this tax as we contend, is unconstitutional because it taxes extraterritorial value and produces a grossly distorted result, or because it is discriminatory, the fact that Michigan could have imposed a plainly valid gross receipts tax and generated as much revenue as a result of that can't be used as a legal justification for excusing or saving the unconstitutional infirmities of this tax. Is it all that clear? Civic. Uh, Tax. Uh, is it going to be conceded uh, by the state that this allocation is so precise? S suppose these were salespeople mostly in Michigan? That's correct, Your Honor. Uh, suppose that the salespeople uh, were very, very important in giving information to the manufacturing component in the other state about the design requirements for this, for this class. And suppose that they contributed a very, very significant amount uh, uh, to sales and to the, and, and, uh, to the su overall success of the company just by their contribution to what was happening back in Iowa. It's not all that clear to me that this is site-specific. Your Honor, we acknowledge that sales activity, including, for instance, uh, the, in, the intangible contributions of centralized management, functional integration, and economies of scale may indeed impact and influence taxpayer decisions that relate to the employment and deployment of labor and to the acquisition and location of depreciable plant. And, and, and we acknowledge also that sales activity and these other intangible factors may also influence taxpayer decisions as to the amount that may be paid for those value-adding activities. But the fact nevertheless remains that when those taxpayer decisions are implemented, you will still know precisely where that value-adding activity takes place, and you will know precisely the amount of value added by that activity. The, the influence or the efficiencies that may be generated by sales activity or by these intangible contributions of centralized management and the like will be reflected only in the measure of the profit component of a value-added tax base. Well, 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 why is that necessarily so? I mean, it might be or it might not be. If, if 
you're saying that labor is so site-specific that it must be, without variation, uh, apportioned precisely to the amount of activity that's economically measurable by a payroll. But that's just contrary to, uh, to economic theory, isn't it? And, 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 to the, and to the concession that you just made, that there are a lot of intangible factors that go to make up the success of a unitary business. The intangible factors only impact on the measure of the profit component of a value-added tax base, which we acknowledge may be properly subjected to three-factor formulary apportionment. But under value-added taxing principles, and indeed, as confirmed by language that is contained in the Single Business Tax Act itself, and indeed, even as the Michigan Supreme Court has noted, the measure of value added by labor and capital specifically the compensation and depreciation contributions to those components, is the taxpayer's cost. And I don't understand why that is. And tr well, translated, the cost with respect to the labor component is what the taxpayer pays its employees for the services they have performed. And with respect to depreciation, translated, the cost is the amount of capital consumed during the accounting period that is measured by tax depreciation. The Single Business Tax Act itself, Your Honor, in, in, in Section 9, specifically defines the contribution of labor to a value-added tax base in terms of what the employer pays its employees. There's no transferred value concept that, that, that applies here. There's no enhanced value concept that applies here. The measure of value-added with respect to the labor contribution is what the employer pays for. And the same is true. And Section 9 of the SBT confirms this with respect to the depreciation component of the SBT. Is it your theory that the Constitution requires that the state adopt the most precise mechanism available for apportionment given the theory of the tax? We say, Your Honor, that with respect to the site-specific components of a value-added tax base, there is no need to apportion them. That is not to say that the state could not come up with an apportionment formula that might fairly reflect the contributions of labor and depreciation to Michigan, even though that formula might not derive an absolutely precise result. If it didn't result in gross distortion, I don't think we would have a constitutional problem here. But in this case, in this case, application of the three-factor formula against uh, petitioner's tax base for the 1980 year has attributed to Michigan compensation that is 39 times more than value added by petitioner's Michigan-based employees, and it has attributed to Michigan depreciation expense that is 970 times more than the value added by the capital consumption that is associated with petitioners' mission-based plan. How does a discrepancy like that have to be before you say the Constitution uh, prohibits it? I mean, where, where would you ever draw the line? Well, Justice O'Connor, in the, in the Hans Ries case, of course, a, a distortion of 250 percent, or about 2.5 times, was found to be significant enough to justify a holding in the taxpayer's favor. Here we have distortion in as many multiples of that. 
It's between 39 and 970 times, depending upon which of these more dominant. Suppose that uh, the taxpayer did have a sizable profit, unlike the taxpayer we have in this case. How should the state apportion that part? We have no quarrel with the application of the three-factor apportionment formula against the profit component of the value-added tax base, because, as this Court has observed on many prior occasions, and which we do not contest, income is difficult to source on a state-by-state -state basis. And that, again, is because net income results from the coalescence of a number of different factors, some of which are site-specific, but some of which, like centralized management, economies of scale, and the like, are not. But as to the compensation and depreciation contributions to the labor and capital components of a value-added tax base, those items, unlike net income, are site-specific. Mr. Sure, surely, Michigan is entitled to take into consideration the fact that the sales activity of uh, Trinova uh, to purchasers in Michigan, presumably automobile companies, is going to bring in a, bring in a great deal of revenue to, to Trinova, is it not? Sales activity will derive revenue. That's right, Your Honor. What, whether it derives income is another point. Well, why, 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 did, why does Michigan have to do, uh, settle for income? Why can't it talk about revenue? Well, it has not talked about revenue here. It, it could have, if it wanted to, it could have uh, established as its primary business tax, a tax on gross receipts, but it is not elected to do here. This is a tax on sleeping. We keep coming back to that, but you answered that question the other way. I thought you answered the question that even though you call it a tax on sleeping, if you measure it by the shoes, it's a tax on shoes. Suppose Michigan had never mentioned value-added tax. Suppose it had never mentioned the fact that the tax base would be total compensation plus total capital cost plus, plus profit. Suppose it had simply said for every business, for every company doing business in Michigan, we are going to impose a tax that consists of a tax of 2% on the three, the three, uh, the three, the three-factor formula: Michigan compensation over total compensation plus Michigan capital costs over total capital costs plus Michigan sales over total sales divided by three. Suppose that's how the tax were described. Would that tax be constitutional? It never mentioned value added. Never mentioned what it's taxing, except it well, recites the factor. And for anybody doing business in in, in Michigan, you pay that tax. Uh, I'm not sure I, I understand the full hypothetical. You describe for me the, the, the factors, what I understood to be a property payroll and sales factor, and then said that there was going to be a 2% tax. But what is the tax base in, in, in your question? The total value of the business divided by those, those three factors. Well, if, if, if you define the total value of the business in terms of value-added principles like Michigan has done here, most of, of, of the tax base is going to be compensation, and that three-factor formula will inevitably cause gross distortion because the sales factor, the reason that is so is because the sales factor the, pro, provides absolutely no clue whatsoever as to where the dominant site-specific productive activity that underlies payments of compensation and depreciation which are the lion's share of the tax base, take place. There is no rational relationship. And this Court has said on numerous occasions that an apportionment formula 
in order to be fair, has to reflect a reasonable sense of how income or value is generated. Here, we does don't that, have... Does that translate to the theory that a distortion is measured against the theory of the tax? No, the distortion is, is measured... Because it seems to me that that yeah, has to be your right, argument. You're right. The components of tax base, what we are taxing here is we are taxing productive activity that is undertaken by the taxpayer, and the tax itself defines productive activity in terms of labor costs, in terms of capital costs, and to a very much lesser extent in terms of profit. That is what is being taxed. And then it is saying, now, what is Michigan's fair share of this total value-adding productive activity that the taxpayer has undertaken? And it is said, we're going to measure that by using an apportionment formula that is widely used to apportion income under an income tax act. And the problem there is, again, the, the use of an equally weighted sales factor. Because the value added by the labor contribution to, to a value-added tax base is sufficiently me measured by the payroll factor alone. And the value added by the depreciation contribution to the capital component is fairly reflected in the property factor alone. Those are the dominant parts of the SBT tax base. Statistics tell us so. 77% of the average SBT taxpayer's tax base is not income, it's compensation. Because of that, when you throw into the mix an equally weighted sales factor, you are adding to the mix in terms of assigning those values to Michigan, something that is irrelevant and something that's going to cause distortion. Because again, sales activity provides no rational clue whatsoever as to where the value-adding activity that underlies the payments to, of, of compensation and depreciation take place. In addition, and independent of the gross distortion that this tax generates, it also produces a discriminatory effect. And here again, the culprit is the sales factor. For those labor-intensive businesses, that have property and payroll factors which, when averaged, are greater than their sales factor, this formula will enable them to export out of Michigan some of their site-specific value-adding activity. While, while for the labor-intensive business that has property and payroll factors which, when averaged, are less than their sales factor, they will be forced to import into Michigan some part of their site-specific value-adding activity. And what this means, what this means is that the out-of-state taxpayer that has the characteristics I have just described will pay more tax on its Michigan value-adding activity than will the in-state taxpayer that has the, uh, the characteristics that I've just described. And while, while that difference in tax responsibility is admittedly not the result of 
the application of different tax rates or varying exemptions or varying credits. Nonetheless, the practical effect of the tax is the same. And it serves to provide a direct commercial advantage and an unfair one to the instators, and it serves as well to exert impermissibly on out-of-state taxpayers the possibility and the inducement to make non-tax neutral decisions to locate their property and their workforce in Michigan. And if, I, if the court doesn't have any additional questions at this time, I'd like to reserve the balance of my time for rebuttal. Very well, Mr. Sheldon. Mr. Resch, we'll hear now from you. Thank you, Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the court. Michigan levies a single business tax, so-called, because it replaced seven previous existing taxes. It's imposed upon business activities. These business activities are measured by a so-called value added. It's quantified by federal taxable income plus several deductions from gross income to arrive at federal taxable income, namely compensation cost, depreciation cost, net interest expense, and net royalty expense. Now, in the case of a unitary multi-state business, this... May I just, may I just interrupt you there? Yes, Your Honor. Start by talking about the federal income tax. That is, is it not correct that for most businesses that's a small portion of the tax base? Yes, that's very true, Your Honor. There isn't really a big disagreement about whether 90 percent of the items are... No, there is no disagreement. In fact, the gross national product figures will also say that 77 percent is compensation payments. There's no disagreement. Uh, to go on, in the case of unitary multi-state business, this tax base, which, has, which results, is apportioned to Michigan by the standard three-factor formula of property, payroll, and sales. Now, the question here is not, does Michigan tax any discrete components? The question here is very simply, is Michigan taxing a unitary multi-state enterprise? Trinova is conceivably unitary. Right there. Assume we have a, a, a unitary multi-state enterprise subject to the tax, and assume Michigan wants to impose a payroll tax on unitary businesses, nothing but a payroll tax, and 90% of the payroll is in Ohio and 10% is in Michigan. Could they use the unitary formula to allocate such a tax, in your judgment? Justice Stevens, if Michigan were to impose a payroll tax similar to a FICA tax upon payrolls, obviously... Michigan wouldn't have a jurisdictional reach over Ohio. But why not? It's a unitary business. You're just using the formula to allocate, and a salesman in, a, in, in Michigan probably bring in all these sales. There what is, could be there wrong is, with it? Wait. We are not, the Michigan tax is upon business activities. It's well, an entirely I'm different... I'm hypothesizing a payroll tax a on payroll, a unitary business apportioned a, by the formula. A payroll tax, if it were simply upon payroll specifically, could not be justified... Uh, under the unitary payroll, which is 90%, and you add 10% more for profit, then it's all right to apportion it. That's not what I'm saying, Your Honor. What I'm saying is that a Michigan tax is not upon compensation, it's not upon depreciation, it's not upon any particular element. It is upon the business activities. It's business activities that are apportioned. Surely, we measure these business activities not by net income, we measure it differently. And, and we come right back to the unitary business principle. If a, if a state seeks to tax the, the proportional activities within the state of a unitary enterprise, it, is, it may certainly do so by unitary apportionment. In mobile oil, for example, this court said 
The unitary business principle is the linchpin of apportionability, and it disallowed separate accounting for foreign source dividends. The reason behind that was that it is impossible otherwise to find a fair way to apportion, uh, to, to identify the site-specific nature of the profit, where the profit comes from except by a formula. But here you base this entirely on 90 percent on factors that can be identified. The factors can be identified, but you, but you cannot identify where the value is added. For example, I believe it was your opinion in Mormon, which pointed out that for all that appears, the Iowa sales, the large sales, may have produced much greater income, a much greater margin of income than the Illinois property and payroll. And so it is here. We cannot, there has been no separate accounting for value added. There has been only a reference to separate accounting for so-called components. For the two costs, compensation, which surely is the biggest cost, and depreciation. But this court already has said in Container Corporation and, and Amarada Hess, it said very specifically... What if the tax, instead of just value added, was a value added by labor tax? And then you apportion it, and you figure your salesman produce much more of it. Then it would be all right, I guess. A value added by labor? Value added by labor. And you use your, your component as payroll. And then you go ahead and apportion it by the formula. Would that be permissible? I believe that it very well might be. But I'll pose even a better one. Could Michigan say, we are going to look at the major expense of the business, namely compensation. And we're going to go ahead and apply this major, and we're to this major expense. To all of you, $226 million in this particular case, we're going to go ahead and we're going to say, of this expense, there is attributable to Michigan 9%, the average of your insignificant property payroll and your 27% sales. And I say, most certainly, Michigan could use that 9% as a measure of Michigan business activity. And this is really what we have here. We have here, Mr. Mr. Rush, is it, is it accurate to say that this is a tax upon business activity? It's a tax that is said to be measured. The tax base consists of, according to the Michigan law, total compensation plus total capital costs plus profit. I read that as a tax upon compensation, capital costs, and profits not a tax upon business activity. Yes, Your Honor. It's the shoes, not the skin. Yes, Your Honors, but for purposes, of, for purposes of measuring, for purposes of measuring how much Michigan may get of these items, they are not site-specific. Like I tried to say in Amarada Hess, this court specifically noted that, that the uh, costs of a unitary enterprise cannot be deemed confined to the locality in which they are incurred. And this is, and, and it, this court has disallowed specific accounting for items either of income or cost. So what I'm saying is none of these items as such is site-specific when I, when I tax activity. It's fine, but does that mean that simply because you can't identify it precisely, you don't even have to try to identify it approximately? If Michigan were to have separate taxes upon these components, and this is our major disagreement here, Trinova views the tax as being one tax upon compensation, one tax upon depreciation, another tax upon interest and royalty expense, and they say we can identify where, these, where, where all of these site-specific 
site-specific costs are incurred. And therefore, the state of Michigan must take that into account. It can only tax a certain amount of compensation. It can only uh, tax a certain amount of depreciation. If this is what Michigan did, rather than imposing a tax upon the overall proportional business activities in Michigan, then most certainly Trinova would have an argument. Then it could separate out these components. This court has never allowed, in a unitary business case, has never allowed the sourcing of foreign source dividends in mobile or the functional separate accounting in Exxon versus Wisconsin or the separate accounting for the stores in Butler Brothers versus McColgan. In each case, this court has said that in a unitary enterprise, we cannot identify where the tax base at what link in the chain of multi-state operations this tax base is generated. And I submit that there is no way to say that the Michigan activities do not contribute uh, the amount of value to, uh, that is being taxed by the state of Michigan. But, but why wouldn't the same result follow from Justice Stevens's first hypothetical that he gave you where there was a tax just on compensation, but that there was a, uh, an apportionment measure used based on income? I, I don't know why you conceded at the outset that the state couldn't do that. It seemed to me that any fair it seemed, it seemed It seemed to me that... Unless you're saying, unless you're conceding, which is what I thought Trinova should be arguing, which is that the theory of the tax and the measure of the tax must be in correlation. If they'd conceded that, I would have asked them what authority there is for that. The theory, the theory of the tax and its apportionment mechanism are completely, really unrelated. If we're talking of a value-added tax, the only theory is that we tax the, 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 the difference between the amount of costs I have for raw materials and services to other business and the amount of my gross receipts. The theory here is very simply you must pay for governmental services, the social costs you generate. On an income tax, we're talking of ability to pay, really. So these are really when we're talking about the theories. But what... what as I understood Justice Stevens' question was this, if the, if the state of Michigan were to say we are imposing a straightforward payroll tax, then I would believe that Michigan, if on a state, uh, straightforward payroll tax, let's say of 1% upon, could only tax the Michigan payroll. It couldn't reach outside and tax Nebraska payroll or Ohio payroll. But well, suppose it was done on a, on a formula that was, when applied by other states, uh, if they'd enacted a similar tax, was equitable to all. What, what, what would be wrong? If, 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 if we have no internal consistency problem, and that is what your question really implies, if other states enacted a similar tax and we would have, and it would be equitable, then I would have no hesitation to say yes, a state could enact that. I'm going now to Container Corporation. Container Corporation requires apportionment formula to be both internally and externally consistent. We know that internal consistency means that if all the states enacted a similar apportionment device, there would be no great overlapping of, of tax base. There would be no multiple taxation. External consistency, the court has interpreted as being that the factors used in the apportionment formula must be related to the ultimate activities here. And I believe to the taxing subject. And I believe that when Michigan says we are taxing you 
upon your business activities which you are conducting in Michigan, and a certain proportion thereof is attributable to Michigan, that it can use certainly the three-factor formula, which this court, once again in container corporation, called a benchmark. I believe that averaging the three factors of property, payroll, and sales truly does reflect the activities which a corporation or any business conducts within the state. And I believe that the state is justified in asking a return in such an event. The successfully argue that, uh, that Michigan isn't reaching beyond its borders to tax, but you still have to answer the question of whether it discriminates against against uh, the discrimination argument can be answered very simply once again, as it was answered in Mormon. The discrimination argument hinges completely upon acceptance of the requirement of separate accounting for this type of a tax. If no separate accounting is required, then obviously the Michigan, there is no discrimination because the out-of-state industry cannot show that the out-of-state industry is burdened more than in-state. The other Coin. The other coin that we have here is the alternative argument, which presupposes a two-factor formula. A two-factor formula ends up, as noted on page 44 of our brief, with a tax of $5,199 for doing a business resulting in over $104 million of revenue to the state uh, to Trinova. Now, this $5,199 on top of it would never change because it's only property and payroll whether Trinova sold $100, $1 million, or $100 million in Michigan. Now, such a two-factor formula, in my estimation, would really, it may pass constitutional muster, but would not really reflect any kind of business activity because I believe that the social cost generated by sales of $100 million just the use of the courts, the highways, the schools, are much greater than the social cost generated by a sale of $100. And yet the two-factor formula would lead to that particular result. Now, I think that Mormon very clearly answers the discrimination argument by noting that the only way you can show discrimination is, is if you say that the Michigan formula, that, the Michigan for, that you must look to other formulas to see that a Michigan formula is, uh, is uh, discriminatory. Of course, Mormon was an attack on the apportionment formula. It didn't have anything to do with the tax base, did it? No. And here the basic attack is on the way the tax base distorts the whole Your Honor, Your Honor, you are correct. Yeah. Uh, Mormon had nothing to do with tax base. But let's talk about tax base for a minute. Tax base in Michigan obviously could be apportioned gross receipts. And indeed, apportioned gross receipts Western life taxes. So apportioned gross receipts uh, were the measure of the tax upon the doing of business in the 1959 Second Railway Express case versus Virginia. In that case, this court upheld the Virginia tax, which was measured by apportioned gross receipts, namely total gross receipts of Railway Express apportioned to Virginia by a mileage ratio. So obviously, if, if gross receipts may be apportioned, 
and obviously if net income may be apportioned, then something in between. The purpose of the apportionment of the gross receipts there was to find out how many of those receipts took place within the taxing jurisdiction. And well, here we know how many of the, how much of the compensation and how much of the depreciation took place in the taxing jurisdiction, virtually none. That is, that is correct, Your Honor. Yeah. But we are not taxing, once again, the depreciation. We are not taxing. We are only looking... And here we're not taxing gross receipts. We're just using uh, sales as one of the factors for apportioning that, that which we assume otherwise could not be apportioned. That is, that is correct, Your Honor. We are not taxing the total gross receipts, but we are taxing a goodly portion of gross receipts, indeed. The Michigan SPT has a nice distinguishing feature. It says, you at the option of the taxpayer, he may pay upon 50% of his gross receipts. Now, this option really is only taken by a taxpayer whose so-called value added would exceed 50%. So really what we have is, in effect, a gross receipts tax limited to 50% of gross receipts. Now, in this connection, I cannot see very much difference here between the New Jersey case, Amarada Hess, and between the, 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 the Michigan tax, which is involved here in, uh, with the SPT. In New Jersey, what we had, we had a so-called New Jersey net income measure. But the New Jersey net income was augmented by the special deductions for net operating loss and other special deductions, plus the federal income tax and the whether a federal windfall profits tax. Now, in that case, what you really had, you had an income tax which was augmented by costs of the business. And this court, and what was stressed in this court was that windfall profits tax was site-specific. It should be excluded from the pre-apportionment tax base. This court disagreed. It, it said, in a unitary enterprise, the costs are no more site-specific than the income elements may be deemed site-specific. And it upheld the New Jersey tax. Now, in this case, what we have is we also start with federal taxable income. It's only that we have different additions to federal taxable income. What we have is a compensation addition and a depreciation addition. And these expense additions, they form the tax base. And these, obviously, if the windfall profits tax could not be, a cost could not be deemed site-specific, it's hard to see why depreciation and compensation, which are also costs, should be deemed site-specific. The additions here are 90% of the total. And in the typical income case, your addition is a very small percentage of the total. Yes, but it has never been the rule that your apportionment that the factors in your apportionment factor be reflected in the, in the tax subject, in the tax base. That has never been the rule. It would never even be with the special industries because mileage formulas really do not reflect, for example, any particular property or payroll. The hope was. As a matter of fact, hasn't it? That is very hard to say. It may have attracted some business to the state, but. Wasn't it hoped that it would? It was hoped that it would. And uh, the reason was because it would be more, more favorable to be located in the state than to be located outside. That is incorrect, right. Your Honor. That's incorrect, Your Honor. Why do you think for a, ma for a minute? Uh, you don't need to ask me a question. No. Uh, no. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Uh, Justice White, no, I was just going to mention that uh, the, uh, 
that the large plants with their small compact cars of General Motors were not built in Michigan. They were built in Tennessee. So obviously, all this attraction didn't really work out. It was not meant to discriminate in favor of, uh, of Michigan. If Michigan wanted to discriminate, it would have... Why did you adopt this new... You, this scheme replaced something else, like this, income tax. Yes. Our income tax in Michigan was, was unpredictably cyclical. There were years in which Michigan got practically no income from its corporate income tax. And in boom years, it got a lot. It also replaced the net worth tax in Michigan. That was the only stable tax that we had in Michigan. It replaced a tax, but that tax was disliked by, the, by all the business community, in-state and out-state. It also uh, displaced a tax upon intangibles, mainly accounts receivable for, for the business, and finally a tax upon their business inventories, which was a property tax, which is really an, uh, an anachronism because most states have repealed their personal property taxes, particularly upon inventories. Now, this was also a tax simplification. Instead of having to deal with all of these taxes, the taxpayer now had to deal only with one tax. This tax would be more, much more stable because like a gross receipts tax would be extremely stable. And so anything that is a modified gross receipts tax, which you can view this SPT as a modified gross receipts tax also, is much more stable. It is not subject to, the flu to fluctuations. The base, like income, is subject to, fl to fluctuations. It was hoped that because of simpler tax simplification, also be, uh, because the businessman could more closely forecast his tax liability, that this would in itself be greatly attractive to industry. But there was no design to try, uh, uh, in the single business tax to bring business into the, to, to the state, to, uh, to, in the words of uh, Westinghouse versus Tully, to exert an inexorable hydraulic pressure to have business performed in the state rather than out of state. Quite to the contrary, if Michigan had done that, it probably would have adopted a flat sales factor the way uh, Iowa uh, has, for example, that would really have uh, that really would have been an encouragement to perform in the state, sell out of state, vice versa. And yet, this court upheld in Moorman uh, the single factor, uh, the single factor sales formula. Now, ultimately, what this case boils down to is that while Trinova admits that separate geographic accounting is not permissible for an income tax, that it should be constitutionally required when we have other than an income tax. That if we have a tax like Michigan, which can be viewed as either an income or augmented by cost tax, modified gross receipts tax, or as the Michigan court puts it, a tax upon the value added to products and services. Now, Trinova's separate accounting argument really results in converting an admitted value added, an admitted tax base of $221 million into a Michigan loss of $2 million. Trinova pays no Michigan tax for the privilege of doing $104 million worth of business in the state of Michigan. 
That is the consequence of the separate accounting argument. In Butler Brothers versus McColgan, the court was faced with the same idea. It was faced also once again with that idea in Exxon versus Wisconsin. And in each one of these cases, the court flatly disallowed convert, converting an, a pre-apportionment tax base positive into a negative loss within the state. Now, realizing that a separate accounting theory might not be accepted, Trinova evolved a secondary argument, which is inconsistent with its separate accounting theories. It evolved the argument, yes, maybe apportionment is proper for our value added. But they say it should only be apportioned by a two-factor formula. But as I noted before, and as explained on page 44 of the state's brief, such a two-factor formula would produce exactly the same amount of tax whether or not there was any substantial sales activity in Michigan by Trinoble, whether they sold a thousand, a million, or a hundred million dollars worth of sales in Michigan. In complete auto transit, in complete auto transit, this court tried to get away from looking to the labels of a tax and said we're going to look at a practical effect of this tax. And yet, the whole argument here is on labels. It's, it is admitted that if Michigan imposed a straightforward income tax, it could use a three-factor formula. If it imposed a, 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 a gross receipts tax, surely it could, it could use a three-factor formula. A net worth tax, as it did impose previously, a three-factor formula may be applied. May I ask you, you see a three-factor formula for a gross receipts tax? Why would you need a three-factor formula? You have well, Your Honor, if, if, if you have a... There isn't, there isn't a precedent for that, is there? Uh, no. I, think all, I, I thought all the formula unitary business cases were all income tax cases. Uh, you need some formula to allocate the income. We don't need a formula to allocate gross receipts. Your, your, your Honor, you're correct that uh, uh, the three-factor formula has only been applied in income tax cases. And uh, on gross receipts, the only case that I know of and I mentioned was Railway Express versus Virginia, which did use a mileage apportionment yeah, which... uh, against total gross receipts, meaning gross receipts may be apportionable as a measure of business activity. Right, if you have some reasonable method of apportioning it. That is There's some relationship to, to predicting how many of the gross receipts were from that particular state. Well, the state was taxing business activity, and it said, we're going to tax this business activity not by taxing a portion of your income, but a portion of your gross receipts. Right. right. And Michigan here says the same thing. We're going to tax uh, th that portion of your business activity attributable to Michigan, not by measuring it by uh, income or even gross receipts, but by something in between. Now, the practical operation of the tax... Trinova pays 28.5 cents per $100 of sales, less than three-tenths of 1%. And I could tell you by statistics, well, it is said, and it's admitted, that the Michigan business on the average will pay over four-tenths of 1% in terms of gross receipts. Because they'll have a bigger proportion of their other two factors in Michigan. That is, that is possible, Your Honor. Well, that's the whole answer, isn't it? Uh, no, that is, that is not the whole answer. Let us take in-state Michigan business, completely interstate business. It also pays over four-tenths of one percent. Now, 
I can contemplate, I'm talking of the practical operation of the tax, I can contemplate the practical operation of this tax whenever I wash the windshield of my 1980 Oldsmobile. I amuse that <laughs> Trinova sold this window glass, this windshield, to the General Motors plant, the Oldsmobile plant in Lansing, Michigan, for about $100. And I know that the value it has added to this windshield is about $56. Now, Michigan, instead of using the $100, uses the $56 to apportion to itself a certain amount. When I look at this $100 windshield, I say for this business in Michigan, the state of Michigan is extracting from you 28 and one-half cents. I think that's a modest recompense for the privileges and protections afforded by the state. If there are no more questions, I will end my argument. Thank you, Mr. Resch. Thank you, Mr. Sheldon, do you have rebuttal? Thank you, Your Honor, I do. Just because a business is a unitary business does not mean that the tax basis of every tax to which it may be subject must be apportioned. I don't think anyone will argue that a real property tax or a tax on immobile, tangible personal property or a severance tax that is imposed against a business has to be apportioned just because the business is a unitary business. Here, the practical effect of this tax is not a tax on business activity. That is merely the legal justification, the legal excuse, if you will, for Michigan to be able to impose a tax against those businesses that are conducting business in the state. The practical effect of the tax is that, for most taxpayers, it's a tax on compensation. And a tax on compensation is like a tax on payroll. And a tax on payroll is, in practical effect, no different than a tax on real property or on immobile, tangible personal property or a severance tax. And like those taxes, it too should not be subjected to apportionment. You need not apportion it. Amarada Hess. The point is made that this court said in Amarada Hess that the costs of unitary business and whether those costs are or are not site-specific is irrelevant in determining their contribution to an income tax base. But Amarada Hess involved a New Jersey statute, a taxing statute that was clearly a, an income tax. It wasn't even close to what the Michigan SBT is. Even after you denied the deduction for the windfall profit tax deduction, what was left of the New Jersey tax was plainly an income tax measured by federal taxable income with just the one deduct uh, taken away for windfall profit tax. Here we have a value-added tax where 90% of the tax base, over 90%, consists of site-specific components, principally compensation. The point is, Amaran Hess does not stand for the proposition that site-specific components of a value-added tax base have to be apportioned or that their site specificity is irrelevant. Council claims that, look, 
Trinova had $104 million of sales into Michigan this year, during the 1980 year. And the SBT, as applied to it, exacted a tax that, that amounted to three-tenths of one percent of its sales. So what, what, what has Trinova to argue about? Well, what Trinova has to argue about is that this tax is not a gross receipts tax. It's a tax on value added. Appendix 3A of our merits brief clearly discloses that the gross receipts alternative is only available to a small fraction of Michigan taxpayers. L l less than 10% use this gross receipts alternative. So in practical effect, we're not talking about a, a gross receipts tax. We're talking about a value added tax. And the only way, the only way Michigan can exact one cent of tax from Trinova is to tax its extraterritorial value, the value that it has added through the contributions of its labor and its capital outside of Michigan. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Sheldon. The case is submitted.